Alan Jacobs wrote this, we are not addicted to any of our machines. Those are just contraptions made out of silicon chips, plastic, metal, glass, none of those even when combined into complex and sometimes beautiful devices, are things that human beings can become addicted to. There is a relationship between distraction and addiction, but we are not addicted to devices. We are addicted to one another, to the affirmation of our value, our very being, that comes from other human beings. We are addicted to being validated by our peers. A distraction, according to Merriam-Webster, is this. It's a thing that directs one's attention away from something else. We are living in a distracted age. On average, Americans check their phones over 100 times a day. 74% of Americans feel uneasy leaving their phones at home when they go out. 71% of Americans say they check their phones within the first 10 minutes of waking up. 70% of Americans say they use their phone on the toilet. 35% of people use or look at their phone while driving. So more and more people are using their phones. That's okay, right? We can use our phones. But Joel, do you think we're getting distracted too much by our technology? Yeah, no, I think a lot of us are. Um, I've definitely made a concerted effort. I think since Apple came out with their screen time functionality to bring down uh, my phone usage, uh, my pickups, uh, notifications, and been a little bit intentional about that because I felt for me that I was too distracted to be productive. I was, I'd go through a day and be like, what, what did I do? Because I would just be pulled in so many different directions. And the more I can reduce that and create this deep work focus time, the more I felt like I'm getting meaningful work done. Yeah, I don't think that feeling is uh, unique to you. A lot of us, including myself, feel like over time I've lost the ability to like sit and focus and keep my attention on a book or on wherever I am, you know, coming out of the pandemic, sitting down in a church service rather than watching it online. And then I was like, oh, I should probably check my phone soon, you know, <laughs> like it, it just it felt different, like even that practice of attending to church um was helpful just to have that that moment of time when you when I wasn't distracted by anything or at least other than my kids or something like that right so Joel what process have you implemented so you've been checking your apps to check how much you're distracted how should we do this let's get super practical super quickly because a lot of people struggle with distraction how do you protect yourself from being distracted from your phone because you and I compared notes before this we started recording and we found that I actually am way more distracted by my phone than you. Yeah. I think uh, if we look actually right now at screen time on iPhone, I think actually majority in North America, uh, a majority of people use iPhone actually over Android, which is, that's nice. I'm sure there are Android apps that do the same thing, but it's as much as it was like a feature that headlined, I don't think people were as excited when Apple first announced it, but coming from, you know, a position of like being in a data job or like thinking about how data affects our lives, looking at this, it allows me to reflect and think like a little bit more strategically. Right. So if you go so to you your have screen, goals, are you like, I want to make sure I don't pick up my phone more than 50 times in a day. I don't actually have uh, a, 
a number, right? Like, I think it's good to have a, a target number so you can like strive to push to something. But I think for me, it is like metrics where it's like, I want pickups to go down. I want to reduce notifications. So actually, if you go into screen time, you'll see like your daily average. Um, and I think, I don't know, maybe I was just more busy this week, but I'm daily averages two hours and 22 minutes. And if you click into it, you can scroll down and you can see your pickups. My pickups is 112, um, which is also down from last week. And my average notifications, I think, is actually quite high at 308. Um, I know there's like a lot of people who get way more than me, but I think comparatively, you could start being strategic and thinking, okay, if I reduce notifications and I'm always attentive to the vibrations of my phone, that'll have an effect on reducing pickups, which will have an effect on reducing screen time where I pull up my phone for one thing and then jump to another thing and spend, you know, five minutes scrolling social media, for example. Right. Right. So should we all turn off notifications on all of our apps? I think that's step one. I don't know why people have their notifications on for something like their email, even where like 99% of emails do not need to be responded to within the first 10 minutes or even in the first hour. And I think this is where you can set the tone with people who you communicate with that if you want to get a hold of me, you should call me or you should text me or whatever that that culture is. Like I know, Joel, if I message you on Discord, you're not reading it in the next hour. And that's healthy, I think, so that I'm not bothering you with a random idea I had. Yeah, no, think- that's exactly what I've like had to do almost out of survival is like restructure things where I can focus on deep work like my job or my kids. Um, the net effect though is that it is harder maybe for people to get a hold of me through mediums that they would get a hold of of someone else more easier right so like you said discord or slack typically people might be comfortable with getting a response fairly quickly even messages but for me if you yeah like you said you have to get a hold of me you need to call um which i think i think is good it's helped me and you know my ability to like improve my focus um and and the thing you I think it's already been mentioned in a lot of documentaries and stuff like that. These tech companies, a lot of them, they actually are interested in monetizing your attention. The longer you spend on their platform, the more opportunities they have to serve you an ad or provide a lead or engage with you or learn more data about you, build more, you know, a profile. And that is really part of their business, right? Like, So they're putting all this data to work. And then I do think companies like Apple, as much as I'm sounding like a big Apple fanboy, I'm typically pretty neutral, I would say. I think they're doing a good job by like presenting to you this data and creating these barriers to say like, hey, like you have the option to turn off, you know, these notifications to like pull back, right? And I think that's a a good, um, good thing they're doing and definitely helps their brand of like, you know, privacy and putting responsibility back into your hands. Yeah, I think I think the companies are in a, a difficult spot because there is this pushback against their the very technology they created, um, but they still want to keep your eyeballs on their apps, right? So they're still going to create things like telling you, oh, Joel is typing. 
right? The dot, 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 Joel is typing. And what they're trying to do when they do that is convince you that there's synchronous communication happening in the same way that you would when you're actually talking to somebody on the phone or in person, it's it's synchronous. It happens at the same time. But pretty much everything that goes through a device is by its very nature, asynchronous communication. It's it's not necessary to respond to a tweet in the very moment that someone tweets. Um, it's always in the past. Everything in the internet is in the past. Uh, Michael Sarkosis um, kind of argues at this point. Anyway, so, so I think these apps are obviously incentivized to keep our eyeballs on their apps. And so we need to do what we can to be aware of that and respond to it well. Um, and, and yeah, using what Apple built in is a good start. There's various apps. Like I, I think I have two different ones on Google Chrome in order to reduce the amount of distractions, even just checking myself of, of how am I getting distracted on, on Google. And there's a whole bunch of them, even just blocking the amount of time you spend on a web page because you don't realize how often you are on Twitter um, or on you know whatever, Reddit or whatever other website. And you want to track those things so that you can be more aware of it. So yeah, the tracking is good. Yeah, I think, you know, to your point on us monet or companies monetizing our attention, when we actually think about like, what are they looking at and how we as a society have actually enabled them to create more of a feedback look loop. So one of the first metrics is like view rate. So if they send you a notification, what's your view rate? What's your open rate? What's your click through? Then time spent on page, conversion, then getting more into where we are today is what's your opt-in or opt-out rate so if they say there's this new feature does that feature get you back into notifications to say like oh this is something i'm interested in there's a new you know reels or new functionality now you're like oh i want the notifications for that because it's more engaging so they're constantly looking at ways to innovate and develop using these metrics to become more sticky so when you think through how strategic that is, um, I think part of it is like we as a society have made it so easy to make ourselves, uh, you know, or give away our attention, right? That any very simple feature will get us to pick up our phone. But if we take a more hardline stance or more conservative stance, where it's like, we're only open the app if this is actually a feature that's driving value to say like, hey, you know, your house is on fire or your pipe burst or something, that's a notification, <laughs> you know, I want to see and drive action to. That's a feature where I can say it's valuable, right? Well, that question of valuable is really the crux of the matter because getting rid of distractions is only as valuable as you have something worth giving attention to, which means that you have this, this definition in mind of this is valuable. This is not valuable. How do we value things? Obviously, as Christians, we use scripture to do that. And then we are able to put in in its, in its place different things, right? So human beings are fundamentally more valuable than rocks, to be like just kind of a silly example, right? Um, yeah. but, but when we're born, you know, Andy Crouch has this in the beginning of his book. His ver- first sentence is this, recognition is the first human quest. And he describes this scientific phenomenon or or this phenomenon that's been studied scientifically that when we're born as humans, the first thing we look for is a human face. 
It's it's what we're designed to look for, to connect to, to attend to. The opposite of a distraction, perhaps you could say, is attending to something. We are designed to attend to one another. And so when we're when we're pulled in by a screen, what do you think is pulling us in? Like even for you, Joel, like when you are drawn to a screen as opposed to a person's face, or maybe you've seen this in your kids, um, what's going on there? What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think it's very shocking, actually, um, with young kids, uh, like my youngest, he's 11 months, and he sees a phone on the couch, and he is drawn to it. He's like, what's that? He wants to touch it. He touches it very quickly. He notices it reacts to his touch. The screen starts moving and scrolling. So now he's like more engaged. Um, and when I think about it or try and break it down, what what's going on with this, you know, very um, early stage being, you know, very uh, malleable brain. I think a lot of that is based on stimulus. So there's light emitted from the device. Actually, the other day we had a fire pit and my son wanted to jump into the fire, right? And I was like, oh boy, this is crazy. You got to grab him. But part of that is like the light is, is being emitted. So the light emitting source, I think, is one stimulus. It's visual. It's very captivating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sounds are also, again, another stimulus path. And so never get sounds for your toys kids i actually had a, a <laughs> sister-in-law who's like those are the worst kids toys to get because they always are playing those sounds it is so oh, yeah. noisy right yeah um, and they, they really work right like i think when you give a, a a toy to a baby that's like doesn't stimulate the audible senses they can lose their attention to it very quickly but if it starts playing noises and flashing lights you at least get another five minutes out of it so the more senses, your argument is the more senses that you give to uh, someone and our phones do a good job of catch, capturing at least three with sight, touch and sound, yeah. um, the more the more uh, entertained you are, or the more you're you're caught up in the experience as opposed to just sound where listening to the radio is not as immersive. Yeah. And I think actually from a from a technical point of view, it's something that technologists do think about where it's like information bandwidth is what I've heard it to uh, referred as. So for example, with Alexa's or devices in your home, you can only speak things to it. And sometimes that takes a lot longer to say like, Hey, you know, turn on the lights rather than opening up your phone, tapping the light on button. Um, And that's because language uh, in terms of bandwidth, isn't that high uh, as compared to visual data. Actually, if you look at, interestingly enough, the file sizes of these mediums reflect that, right? Like Hmm. audio files are a lot smaller than image files because there's actually a lot more data. And our brains function very similarly to that, where for visual data, there's definitely a lot more bandwidth going through and to your brain. Um, Mm -hmm. So then, yeah, touch, you know, there's all the stimulus from your motor motor signals or your motor neurons. So uh, yeah, back to the kids, I think they're very engaged by that because it engages more of them, gives them more fidelity. And I think that's again, why a lot of these other apps are thinking about how do we get people more distracted, give them more attention is 
make it more engaging, right? So I think we kind of talked about it with a little bit on the metaverse, but it's almost <clears throat> interesting how much more engaging those things will be and how much more addicting and attention grabbing those things will be. Well, it goes back to what were we designed to do. And if we are designed to, you know, look at, get attention from, be attended to by other humans, then of course a phone is going to, at its best, try to mirror that. And the thing about a phone is it's it's not just attending to you when you turn it on and giving you those stimuli of, of you know, sight, sound, and touch, but it's also personalizing it for you. And it's always doing what you want as the consumer. And I think that's the, that's the draw um, that sometimes we miss that the devices become a, a real human replacement. And I think that's one of the reasons why kids do get caught up in them and why we as adults get caught up in them too. Um, now this is all kind of been, been, negative and i think in part it is we need to be worried about our distraction um one of the things that i appreciate about michael sarcosis um he he his he speaks in such thick language that that it's almost hard to process when you really need to attend to what he's saying in order to make sense of it but i find him to be incredibly insightful uh first in in the article he quotes from a 1997 essay that appeared in wired magazine and the essay said this this is, this is a long time ago, but, but it said this, ours is not an information economy. By definition, economics is the study of how a society uses its scarce resources. And information is not scarce, especially on the net, where it is only abundant and overflowing. We are drowning in information, in information, this is back in 1997, true now as well, yet constantly increasing our generation of it. So a key question arises, is there something else that flows through cyberspace, something that is scarce and desirable? There is. No one would put anything on the internet without the hope of obtaining some. It's called attention. And the economy of attention, not information, is the natural economy of cyberspace. I just found that to be a very helpful comparison. You know, we're not living in an information economy by definition of what an economy is. We're living in an attention economy. But then Michael Sarkasis comes in and he kind of challenges this idea. First, he notes that he's sympathetic to it. He says, I would have pretty much assented to this whole line of thought. Indeed, I know that I have spoken and written about attention as a scarce resource that we ought to take great care in how we allocate. I would have had no problem at all with Howard Rheingold's principle, cited by Goldhaber, that attention is a limited resource, so we should pay attention to where we pay attention. While I remain quite sympathetic to the spirit of this line of thought, it now seems to me that the framing of the problem is itself part of the problem. To begin with, we might do well to stop thinking about attention as a scarce resource. So he goes on in this essay, and it's voiced by him because he produces his own audio for these essays. And he he notes that once we call it a resource, once we put it into an economic frame of reference, once we start to say that we're not just giving attention, we're paying attention, ching, 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 you know, like, like we are paying attention. We start to think of it in a way that's unhelpful. Attention discourse proceeds under the sign of scarcity. It treats attention as a resource, and by doing so, maybe it has given up the game. To speak about attention as a resource 
is to grant and even encourage its commodification. If attention is scarce, then a competitive attention economy inevitably flows from it. In other words, to think of attention as a resource is already to invite the possibility that it may be extracted. Is the claim that we have all the attention we need even plausible? As I've thought about it, I've come to think that it is, but we may need to reevaluate more than just how we think about attention in order to see it as such. So here's a proposition for you to consider. You and I have exactly as much attention as we need. In fact, I'd invite you to do more than consider it. Take it out for a spin in the world. See if proceeding on this assumption doesn't change how you experience life, maybe not radically, but perhaps for the better. And he, he asks us to consider this proposition that you and I have exactly as much attention as we need. Um, to go back to our limits podcast, we are limited by even our ability to attend to things. So I actually think it could be destructive as a pastor um, or assistant pastor or whatever my title is is now in my volunteer role. But But when I'm speaking and I'm preaching at a church, if I throw a video up at the same time that I'm preaching and while I'm encouraging people to look up in their, their Bibles, I want them to really get to know God's word and not to remember that cool video because that will be what they remember, right? Or they will remember the illustration more than they might remember the word of God. And I'm not saying that illustrations or videos are therefore wrong to use. I just think we need to be, we need to be cautious and aware of, of how, the more senses we use, the more things we distract, the the worse off it is. And we can't think about um, it as this, this resource to be extracted. We are limited by the amount of attention, attention we can give. And attention in and of itself is like this finite good thing that should be used for good rather than something that should be commodified and in, in some sort of attention is worth $2 per second or something. Yeah. So... If you spend one hour doing a very intensive thing, you know, actually in the evening, you're not going to have that attention because you spent mm -hmm. it earlier in the day. Um, so I think you do have a limited amount throughout your day. And it's not like um, it's per hour based, right? It's not like maybe you spend 30 minutes in the morning and then you can spend 30 minutes in the evening. I think it doesn't function as linearly as that. Yeah. And it's probably influenced by all sorts of factors, how much coffee you've drank and how much coffee you're addicted to. Um, and even your, your amount of rest you got the night before, or if you've taken the Sabbath and you've been able to replenish a sense of your attention because of that. Um, but, but at this point, you know, people listening might get the, the, instinct that, well, the technology is bad. The technology is causing distraction. We should be attending to things that are more important. The, the technology is incentivized or the companies running the technology, they're incentivized to get our gaze. And therefore, um, the technology is bad. And, and I'm not saying the technology is bad. And I actually think there's something deeper going on here. Like, why are we distracted? Is it because the tech is so good or is there something more fundamental? And I do think there's something more fundamental. Uh, there's a New Yorker article that talks about this. Um, it, it talks about, and I'll, and I'll just quote a little bit from it, but there was a comedian a few years ago on the late night show with Conan O'Brien. And he argued that people aren't addicted to their phone, or he argued that people are addicted to their phones. And he said this, 
they it's because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. And then as far back as 1874, Frederick Nietzsche wrote that haste is universal because everyone is in flight from himself. Going back even further, as far as the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, he said, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. So the problem is not, oh, the tech, we're getting distracted by it. We could always get to be distracted by tech. Going back to, you know, in biblical times, the people of, of Israel, they were supposed to, when they came back, the, the people that God brought back from exile, there was about 50,000 of them. And he brought them back to Jerusalem and they were supposed to rebuild the temple and they started to, and you can read Ezra 3, and then they gave up. And they gave up and like over a dozen years goes by and Haggai calls to them and says, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. So give direct your heart towards your own ways. And at that phrase is actually repeated twice in verse five and verse seven. And the point that Haggai is saying is this, is that you are distracted. You are using these wood panels for your own house, decorating your own house up instead of doing what you should in building the Lord's temple. Now, it's not wrong to build houses. It's not wrong to use wood panels. It's what are you using it for? And that's that's the story of technology, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always think when I read those type of passages, I'm like, oh, I'll be better than those guys. You know, I wouldn't be distracted by building wood panels and putting it in my house. I'd be focused on the task at hand. But the reality is, like, it's just a human condition, right? That, like, we carnally fall into these distractions and we have to be mindful about how that technology you know can be used in a positive way and also how that technology if we're not mindful of it we will be you know used um hmm. by someone controlling it right so yeah, even food a- can be a distraction drink alcohol can be a distraction your clothing can be a distraction and money, obviously, like all of these things that God created to be used for good can be used in just a consumeristic, self-indulgent, distracted way. And so how, how do we get out of this? How do we get out of this? Well, we need something worth attending to, right? So I want to preach at you right now. I want to be like, (laughs) Jesus, Jesus, we need Jesus. Like, like genuinely, we need a vision of God that is, that we see as better than anything that we can like hold or eat or drink or touch anything, anything that enlightens our senses. Now we need to have a stronger vision for Jesus and what he can do for us and who he is that is worth it. Yeah, I think it's pretty profound. And I also, sorry, I'm like wrestling with a thought that like one of my first ideas is like, well, we can use technology to help us, right? And it's like, I was internalizing that where it's like, oh, I'm thinking about ter- technology first and I'm just thinking about Jesus first. Does that <laughs> make technology an idol for me, right? And I think it's it's definitely something to 
to think about, right? What's your first thought? And it's like, why isn't, why isn't my first thought that this is a solution, right? Well, and this is the modern self. You've, you've perfectly encapsulated something that is in this massive book, The Modern the modern self or the rise and triumph of the modern self by Carl Truman. It's like 400, 500 pages. There's a shortened version of it that everybody should read called strange new world. Um, But it's about this, this change from the external and the internal changing positions. So we used to, as a society, 500 years ago, see external factors as impacting us rather than us using technique or technology to change the external world. So a farmer 500 years ago would have to look up at the sky and say, oh, I hope that God will give me the rain. I hope that clouds will provide so that my stuff will grow. But then the farmer changes and says, okay, actually, I can create a greenhouse. I can create conditions of fertilizer. I can change the external world. Even like going back to uh, mothers giving birth, because that's apparently like a sub theme of this episode, like that was seen as this dangerous thing 500 years ago right? We did not have the technology that we do today to ensure in most cases, though, definitely not all, um, that a delivery of a baby will be safe. Um, right. So, so you have these, these benefits of technology to keep us safer, to keep us healthier. I'm not saying technology is right or wrong. I'm just saying that our disposition now is not to be influenced by the external world, but to rather influence the external world through our desires. And that change leads to a rise of a whole number of things like that we see today, um, because now we've taken that to the extreme, that the inner self is more valuable even than your body, the inner self, your inner desires. I think, no, that's a good, um, that's an accurate statement. Because the other day I was talking with my brother about uh, locus of control. And like locus of control is a theoretical construct. I think uh, Julian B. Rotter uh, kind of described it in social learning theory of personality. And I do think like our society has at least enabled us to have more of an internal locus of control to say like, I have the ability to control my life rather than a lot more people, you know, a long time ago had an external locus of control. And part of that is because we've given ourselves all these tools to influence our surroundings, right? Um, So it's easier potentially to have an internal locus of control. But Mm -hmm. also like, interestingly, like entrepreneurs and I feel a lot of driven people have a very intense internal locus of control because when, you know, all these, maybe it's optimistic people, when you're seeing bad news about like why your startup's going to fail or why it's not going to succeed, having that ability to be like, oh, I can figure it out, like Mm -hmm. often like helps them get through these moments where other people would just quit. Right. So. Yeah. And I'm not against autonomy in all its forms. Um, It's just that now our default position is exactly what you it's like, how do we solve distraction? I'm going to create a tech tool to solve it. I'm going to create a technique to solve it. Like I need to listen to a podcast that will tell me how to live and that will solve my problems instead of um, what would be, oh, I have a problem. I need to go to the church or I need to go to, you know, my community or I need to go to God and I need to be brought into reality because it's, it's my problem that, that is really a, the problem is with me. So I need to change myself in accordance with some objective external thing. Now the Bible is far more nuanced than the just be, oh, the external to internal is, 
is good and the internal to external is bad. Because obviously you could live in a in a society where the external things pushing upon you are terrible and you need to have this autonomy to stand up against it, right? Instead of living in in oppression, maybe you do actually need to stand up against it. Like Paul says to um, Onesimus, um, or it says to Philemon, you got to take back Onesimus. He's a slave. You got to take him back as a brother. Like, so he's trying to give Onesimus that autonomy and get him out of the slavery that he was in. Um, so that autonomy is good. The Bible has that Genesis one passage where God makes man and female woman in his, in God's own image and gives him then a responsibility to care for the external world, but it's under God's command. So the external world acts subordinate to humanity. And yet, because God created the the external world, we read in Romans 1, that that external world teaches us about God, and that we can learn about God from the ant, and that we can learn about God from the sparrows, Jesus says. So the external world is, is, when we think about it, including God, well, obviously God needs to speak to us and tell us about reality and how we ought to live. But so too, the natural world can teach us about God and teach us how to live and teach us things about nature and how we ought to live. And so we do need to live within this. And yet we're given this responsibility. We're given this autonomy. We're given this um, authority over creation. So the Bible's nuanced in this. And, and I think we've lost some of that over time. I think some pastors speak negatively about the created world, even technology. And so we think of it as just external versus internal, internal versus external, right. instead and, of seeing the more nuance of the biblical yeah, picture. Instead of seeing a balance of like, Hey, you know, you are allowed to like have this internal drive under the knowledge of like hey ultimately everything is within god's control right like having this like nuanced perspective um (laughs) rather than like having this like it's one or the other so thinking about how we can use our internal drives our desires to shape the world and we should do that we should use that how can we avoid distraction and then how should we think about this you go first yeah so I was, you know, actually thinking about in, in my life as a product manager, my calendar gets filled up all the time. People just schedule meetings with me and I end up being kind of a servant to this tool. My attention is, is kind of blocked and taken away. So actually one of my um, former colleagues went to a startup called Mayday and they're working on a smart calendar app where this technology will actually block off time for you, knowing that you need to get some deep work in, it'll protect your calendar, it'll start doing some of those kind of smart functionality. And I think that's really good. And I think we're starting to see a trend in technology, um, you know, first with, okay, we created these inventions that take our attention to, okay, now we're creating the data to understand how our attention is being pulled to, okay, now that we know these levers, what new technology can we create to um, better affect that, better control our time, better combat the disadvantages of the previous intention? And it's interesting, um, Kranzberg, who we mentioned uh, on this pod before, has a second law where he said, invention is a mother of necessity, which is the opposite of Plato, who originally said necessity is the mother of invention. And it really is. 
Yeah. Whenever, whenever these terms go with me, I like need to take time to process. So maybe our listeners will too. Necessity is the mother of invention is nor is the normal phrase, right? Because I need something. So I invent it, but Kranzberg law is the opposite, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, okay, chicken and egg, which one started first, but now you're in a situation where like technology is creating a new need. So technology is creating a new necessity. Right. That's right. Kranzberg is arguing. So that's a situation we're in today where we've created things that had negative effects in our societies. And now we have to think of, okay, what can we create new to, you know, move forward in a more elevated and um, take back stuff that we've lost in our, you know, our attention. Yeah, we can't, we can't get rid of these digital technologies in our lives. And yet, and we know that like to get rid of them would take this like massive collective action, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still take individual actions. So just because there's this rise of obesity doesn't mean that we shouldn't eat healthier. Just because there's a rise of fast food doesn't mean that we can't be smarter when we grab something when we're on the run, um, right? And so I have just five thoughts of five different things that we should practice in order to help us be present. Because I think that's the distinction between being distracted and being present. Um, prayer, Sabbath. And then the third one, I don't know how to summarize it. It's like silence or journal or reflection, which scripture talks about all three of those in different ways. Like Jesus went away to get alone with himself. Um, nature is the fourth that like we should be around nature more often. We should consider the birds, consider the ants. We, I think we've really lost the value of it. And even nature in the sense of human beings are nature, like to be physically present with other human beings um, and, and to appreciate them in their full form, um, which which is the last one, community. If, if we are practicing those five things of prayer, Sabbath, silence, nature, community, I do think that that helps protect us against distraction because we have these practices. Some people would argue that prayer is a form of mindfulness, right? right. Mindfulness is this huge thing that has grown. I, I would say, you know, no, well, look up biblical prayer and, and study the passages of how the Bible talks about prayer and then compare that to mindfulness. Mindfulness sometimes abstracts you from thinking and directing your mind towards things. Whereas biblically, like we saw in Haggai, we are to you know, set our set our hearts towards things. We're we're supposed we're supposed to in a biblical framework attend to things, attend to valuable things. So it's not the same as mindfulness, but there's some similarities. And I think for myself, I my wife and I have tried to do this over the last mm, two months on Sundays, like no phones. Right. Um, some people call it a digital Sabbath. It has really changed you know, some of my tendencies of picking up my phone um, other times during the week because I feel that that drive, oh, I'm just going in to grab a glass of water and then go back outside. Let me just check Twitter. It's like, no, I don't need to check Twitter. I don't. Like, it's Sunday. Um, so yeah, those five things, prayer, Sabbath, silence, um, or journaling, reflection, however you practice it, nature and community, I think are all very key. Yeah, no, I think that's really good. And the, and the one thing I do want to tap on is like, I didn't mention it earlier, but practically what I do or have done to bring my consumption down is like take my phone out of my pocket so I don't feel the vibration put it down mm -hmm. on a table maybe put it even under a book or something and now it's like I've created the space if someone calls me I'm going to hear it but I'm not going to get that pull so it's almost like I'm taking these 
that Sabbath learning on Sunday that you're having, where it's like, you're actually rewiring your brain. And I'm just doing that more consistently. But the real question I want to ask you is what would Jesus tech would Jesus use technology to avoid distractions? Did Jesus get distracted? Um, I, so I would say Jesus never got distracted. I like if we think about distracted in just a negative sense, in a sinful sense, in the in the way that the people of Israel in Haggai's day got distracted from doing what they ought. Jesus always did what he ought to do. Sometimes we think about sins of commission and sins of omission, um, as if sins of omission, lacking doing the right things. Um, that's sometimes our our sin in our culture. It's like, I didn't do anything that was that bad, but did you do anything that was that good, right? Jesus was always doing good things. So I would say that Jesus, like there's a story in Mark chapter five, where, let me pull it up. So Jesus, he just crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. He always had places to be. Um, he was a very busy guy. Um, then one of the synagogue leaders, important, named Jairus, came and when Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleaded, pleaded earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she might be healed. So Jesus went with him. Now, next verse, a woman was there and there was this crowd pressing around Jesus. She's sick. She had suffered a great deal and her many doctors. She heard about Jesus. She just tried to touch his clothes. And Jesus is like, who touched my clothes? And then the disciples are like, you see, there's this huge crowd. Why are you asking who touched me? How are we supposed to know? And Jesus kept looking around. And, and then he's like, oh, there you are. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed. And it's like, what about that daughter? What about Jairus's daughter? Was Jesus distracted from right. doing what he ought to do? And guess what? Jesus was still speaking. Jairus, the synagogue leader, people came from his house and told him, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. Of course, Jesus always going back to belief. He did not let anybody follow him except for Peter, James, and John, and the brother, the brother of James. And they got to the synagogue. People were crying and wailing. What's all this commotion? The child is dead. Uh, but Jesus is like, no, the child's not dead. They're just asleep. And they laugh at Jesus. And then he he says, Talitha Kom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up. So Jesus got distracted, you could say, in the sense that yeah. he was going to do something. He said he was going to do something. He started to do something else because that took priority and still was able to do good that he originally planned on doing. So I think that's the closest thing we could say to to distraction. Um, but he is, he is ultimately the only way that he ever sinned is that he became sin. He became our sin. He became our distraction. Right. All of our distracted tendencies that we feel so guilty about, he died on the cross for that. Um, and he rose again in his, his new body, physical body. And he gives us that new spiritual existence this new birth to be born again and to live for him rather than living for devices to give our attention to the one who resurrected us um, to turn our eyes upon jesus to look full in his wonderful ways so that the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace yeah no it's very good there there's one takeaway i got there is um i don't know if you could call it meaningful distraction right with the person touching his cloak but 
it we have this connotation of distraction as negative, which like, yes, many times it is, but there are distractions that, you know, it makes sense for us to turn our attention to that we originally didn't plan for, right? Like mm-hmm. there's emergency or something that we weren't focused on doing, but we do need to give our attention to. So I think in that, you know, paradigm, it makes sense for us to still like have the ability to be contacted, to be quote unquote distracted or have our intent attention called elsewhere um so it's not like we should just throw out you know like technology completely because there Mm -hmm. is you know time and place and and importance level for certain things we just have to decide what that threshold is and work on making that better yeah determine our values determine what's important to us so this has been wwjt my name's andrew my name's joel we're not supposed to, I always do that, but anyways. So, so the backstory of this is that Joel's wife once said, uh, after listening to the very first pod we did, you guys shouldn't say my name is, you should just <laughs> say, I'm Andrew, I'm Joel. You don't sound like real podcasters. So I've been trying to get out of it, but I just apparently always introduce myself with my name is. Um, we are overcoming a little bit of, what did you call it the other day? Imposter syndrome yeah. uh, with this podcast. But honestly, with the feedback that that I've gotten, and I know Joel, you've gotten, um, this is doing good in the world and people are really using it to grow in their walk with God. And um, I'm just really happy to be doing it. I'm happy to spend the time doing it. And so if you like this podcast, I'm going to be that guy right now that says, give it, give it a like, give it a five stars, um, share it. I'm not going to be embarrassed to ask you to do that because perhaps this is doing good in the world. If if it's doing good in your life Um, and also contact us, Uh, send us an email. What would Jesus tech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Both of us would get that email. That will not be a distraction to us. If you have ideas for what we should talk about in the future, give like a list of uh, a whole bunch of things. But if you want something in particular to be talked about, uh, we would love to do that. We'll eventually start getting some uh, some other people on the pod as well, some guests, some guests too. So maybe you have an idea for that. So please let us know what you think. Um, and with that, this has been WWJT. Take care. Bye.